Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Canadian MPs give Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky a standing ovation. Some Ukrainian refugees have already started to arrive in Canada. What's that resettlement process like? Experts don't think China will step up to assist Russia in its war in Ukraine. Ontario College students take note. Faculty could be on the picket line as of Friday. Is the rising cost of fuel a legitimate reason to delay a return to the office? And is there such a thing is the perfect March Madness bracket. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It's an attempt to destroy our future, to destroy our nation, our character. You Canadians, you know very well all this. That's why I'm asking you, please do not stop in your efforts. Please expand your efforts to bring back peace in our peaceful country. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rex Imprin with you. That is the voice of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky speaking through a translator, uh, making an emotional speech to Canada's parliament yesterday. Zelensky received a standing ovation in the House of Commons and uh, he urged for assistance in the war against Ukraine and again repeating his call for a no-fly zone over the sky in Ukraine. Robert Hewish is our next guest. He's an associate professor at Dalhousie University University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Robert. Yeah, good morning, Rick. Nice to be here. I thought President Zelensky did a wonderful job of painting a picture of what's happening in his country and, and making it relatable to Canadians, referencing places like the CN Tower and Montreal and Ottawa's airport and Vancouver. What are some of your takeaways from yesterday's historic speech to MPs in the House of Commons? Yeah, you're you're right on the money there. I think there's there's been uh, notable dignitaries who've spoken to Parliament in the past, and you know for, for reasons that are important at the time. But Mr. Zelensky's message, I think, was one that 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 did create that connection between Canada and Ukraine. Uh, that we know what's going on there, and that Ukraine is very much aware of who we are as a country and what our potential can be as a country to to respond to this crisis. Uh, there are such strong connections between the two countries, and so many people who've got personal relationships involved in this. And I think Mr. Zelensky's message was that this, this conflict, this war, is on his doorstep, literally on his rooftop. And it's a reminder to say that this is not reserved just to Ukraine. This is something that is going to impact the world, and it could impact other parts of the world too. So it's, it's one that says we, we, we've got to have solidarity now, but we have to have preparedness going forward because with, with the sort of aggression, the, the nature of aggression that we've seen out of Russia, anyone can be subject to this. There was a little bit of a surprise in the House of Commons following the speech, and that came from interim Conservative leader Candace Bergen, who said that Canada should commit to a no-fly zone, at least over humanitarian corridors in Ukraine. Now, I'm not sure that's doable without agitating Russian President Vladimir Putin and triggering a much bigger conflict in Europe. What do you think about Bergen's suggestion? Right. So the, that's something that Mr. Zelensky himself has said. We, we need to close down the skies. Right. He's he's seeing the, the potential for Russian aircraft to come into uh, into Ukraine and really change the dynamics. Right now, it's been a land war and it's one where it's relied on a lot of shelling of, of urban targets and some of the strategic missiles that he's been using as well. But the, the air attack from Russia has been quite minimal. So here's a problem with just putting a no-fly zone up. And problem the first is that 
you if you put it up there, then you have to enforce it. And we've seen Russia push boundaries on no-fly zones in the past, specifically with Syria. There was a conflict between Russian aircraft and uh, Turkish aircraft during the, 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 the conflicts in Syria. And so once you put that up, it needs to be enforced. And if mistakes are made, it can really tr- it can trigger a, a, a process that can escalate the conflict quickly and further. Uh, so that's the first problem. The second problem may be a bit of foot dragging on Canada's part because we know that we our aircraft uh, that we have cannot keep up with some of the advanced aircraft that the Russians have. Uh, the, the, the Americans, the British, the French have modernized their their warplanes to 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 combat what uh, what Russia has with the MiG fleet, but ours will not be the superior aircraft if deployed to enforce. Uh, so we would be going in there with one foot back, so to say, and and that may be another reason for the hesitancy to to engage with that. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Robert Hewish, Associate Professor, Dalhousie University. We are chatting about Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's historic speech to Canada's parliament yesterday. He's expected to make a very similar pitch to the U.S. Congress today. What response should we expect to hear from the United States? Well, I think the U.S. scenario uh, is very, very interesting because there has not been a lot of unity in U.S. politics for, well, quite a while. And it seems that on in Washington, there is some some unity coming together on this. I mean, uh, even even uh, former U.S. President Donald Trump, who initially praised Putin as being a strategic genius, is now retracting that and and, and saying you know, that he's 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 crazy, uh, to quote unquote. So the Republicans are coming closer to where the Democrats are on this, and the other factor in the states right now that uh, I do have to give President Joe Biden credit for is dealing with this conflict, knowing that there's also a war of disinformation going on. When you're dealing with with Russian media and Russian output, uh, there's a lot of misinformation. And what the U.S. has done so far, what Mr. Biden has done so far, is to be very open and transparent with what their intelligence gatherers are saying. Uh, They were the ones in early January that said this is going to happen. And a lot of intelligence experts, uh, Ukraine experts, even Russian experts were like, no way. This is this is too ludicrous to happen. And sure enough, it did. So I think that the transparency from Biden on this issue and the moving forward of the Republicans will will make it a pretty receptive audience to Mr. Zelensky. Uh, And depending on the requests that he makes, if they're doable within the U.S. framework, uh, they will respond. And I can see the U.S. starting to take a a stronger lead in these discussions that are going to go on at NATO next week as well. We're going to have, as you mentioned, yeah, a big milestone next week as NATO leaders, including Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, will convene in Brussels for a special summit on this war. Is it going to be more than just a photo op? Oh, yes, I believe so. Uh, there's really two processes at play. Uh, the first one is what's the way out of this current situation? I mean, the uh, the, the conflict that we've seen here uh, has been one that Mr. Putin initiated, bungled, mismanaged, doesn't have an exit strategy. Is he trying to rule Ukraine? Does he want to put a uh, you know a puppet uh, a puppet leader in there if he was to get control of of the country? So there's no exit strategy for Putin. And the one way out right now is through, is through diplomatic channels, which they're, they're starting, to, starting to come together. And again, that's in part because of Ukraine resistance. So there'll be discussions about what's Putin's current exit strategy out of Ukraine. And the second thing is, is that NATO has been designed to keep Russia from invading Europe. And that's its whole purpose. 
Uh, and now we've seen that Russia had, took, a, took, a, took a swing at it and pieced off parts of Ukraine and, and is now uh, attacking civilian targets in there. I don't think NATO is going to be in a position to say, well, that was an unfortunate couple months. Let's see how we can move forward. I think we're going to see the beginning of a walling in of Russia in terms of uh, communications, economic connections, and uh, dialogue with politicians there. So all that to say is we have, NATO and Russia enjoyed 30 years of, of sort of quietness, but now we're going to get back to the old ways. Uh, not an iron curtain, but certainly a, a, a very deep ditch between those two those two factions. We'll see what happens when that uh, latest shoe drops. Robert, appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Rick. Really do appreciate it. Robert Hewish, Associate Professor at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We need to protect at a minimum the airspace over the humanitarian corridors so that Ukrainians can seek safe passage away from the war zones and to allow humanitarian relief to reach those areas under siege. Interesting comments from interim Conservative leader Candace Bergen yesterday endorsing the idea of protecting Ukrainian airspace following President Vladimir Zelensky's speech in the House of Commons yesterday. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. All of this comes as some Ukrainian refugees have now started to arrive in Canada and the resettlement process is underway. Adam Hummel is an immigration lawyer and vice chair of the Jewish Immigrant Aid Services Toronto and joins us now on GMH. Good morning, Adam. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on this morning to explain how this process works. We know that Canada has committed to accepting many Ukrainian refugees. We don't have a number yet. What is the process of bringing over uh, individuals and families to this country? So there's a number of uh, different processes that uh, people can use to come here. Uh, Right now, uh, or recently last week, uh, Canada opened up a temporary uh, program in which uh, Ukrainians who are looking to come here for a temporary visit uh, can uh, apply, get expedited visas, arrive here uh, and stay for between two and three years uh, as temporary uh, visitors. Uh, the government has also opened up pathways for Ukrainians, uh, nationals who are already in Canada uh, on work permits and visitor permits and things like that. And they've also opened up a few uh, more options in terms of family reunification, spousal sponsorships and uh permanent residence options too. So the the temporary program, is that usually open to anyone or are they making a, a unique kind of um, laneway, if you will, to these Ukrainian refugees? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, what I understand it is, uh, this is pretty unique to the Ukrainian situation right now. Uh, it's an opportunity for, it usually it takes a couple of weeks, if not months, to process a visitor uh, visa application. Right now, uh, people from Ukraine could uh, uh, technically uh, apply for a visa pretty quickly, get to Canada and get this emergency authorization to be here and work here. What is the main challenge for these refugees coming over? Uh, one of the biggest challenges is the uh, emotional state that they're in. Uh, there is what well, we've what we've found is that uh, they are very uh, they're having a very difficult time in terms of deciding whether to uh, stay in Ukraine, leave Ukraine, um, whether they'll they, they have any uh, knowledge of when they're, if they're going to be able to return home, when they're going to be able to return home. Um, and for those who are coming here who don't have any family here, it's really just trying to um, uh, to understand the lay of the land, very different country uh, than Ukraine, and um, uh, 
you know, for those who are arriving in Toronto, for example, trying to figure out how best to make it here with the high cost of living that we have. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Adam Hummel, immigration lawyer and vice chair of the Jewish Immigrant Aid Services Toronto. I guess if there is some good news, I've heard that Canada, and I did not know this before a couple days ago, has the largest population of Ukrainians outside of Ukraine. So Canada seems to be well suited to welcome Ukrainian refugees. Yeah, I understand that as well. And, you know, for, for uh, you know, through our organization, Jias, we uh, thankfully, thankfully, we have a, a long history of helping um, um, immigrants from the former Soviet Union. Um, and so people who are coming from Eastern Europe. And so we have um, not only a good um, established community already in Canada of Ukrainians and, and Eastern uh, Europeans, but uh, we have the means to really help them um, as best as we can. Obviously, the resettlement process, we will probably see most of the Ukrainian refugees come over and be settled within communities where they can, you know, continue to practice their customs and go to, uh, you know, Ukrainian churches. Uh, I- I'm sure that people like yourselves are going to look at, you know, a place like Hamilton to say, you know, there's a there's a large Ukrainian community. This would be a good place for a refugee who is coming over. Absolutely. Uh, places like Hamilton and, and cities around, I mean, cities around southern Ontario are, are ideal. Uh, unfortunately, uh, like I said before, there is the element of the, the high cost of living that comes with a lot of these cities. Um, but um, ab- absolutely, wherever there's a wherever there's a good community, wherever there's a good religious community for these uh, immigrants to fit into, then uh, it, it helps um, with the, you know, the family based approach to resettlement. How much does something like this cost? In terms of... Uh, helping to settle a family? Yeah, well, a family coming over, you know, government assistance, setting up this temporary program. Uh, are there any price tags, even anecdotally, that we can, are we talking about tens of thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars? What's the ballpark? Uh, I'm not able to talk about the cost. I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I don't really have a good sense of what the cost is on the government end. Uh, uh, as, a, as a settlement organization, we raise money uh, to help with the settlement um, services that are provided to uh, these new refugees. And so, uh, sorry, not refugees, immigrants. Um, and it and it depends on um, the family. It depends on the makeup of the family, what their needs are, how old they are, uh, how high need they are, and, and factors like that. Great to hear. And uh, we will be accepting a lot of people as uh, we come to understand. And organizations like the Jewish Immigrant Aid Services Toronto will be at the forefront in helping those people get settled. Adam, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for having me on. That's Adam Hummel, immigration lawyer and vice chair of Jewish Immigrant Aid Services Toronto, one of the many organizations who will play a part in bringing these refugees and immigrants to Canada and uh, help them find a, a little bit of peace in this time of great upheaval. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. And as parliamentarians united in this house today and all Canadians, we stand with you. As friends, you can count on our unwavering and steadfast support. That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reaffirming Canada's support for Ukraine during this time of war following the speech from Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky to Canada's parliament. He will do so again at the U.S. Congress, at least virtually today. Lots of talk between all the players that are involved in this conflict. Of course, at the center is Russia and Ukraine, but NATO countries, um, allied forces reaffirming, as I said, their support for Ukraine, but not implementing a no-fly zone, as President Zelensky has called for. On the other side of the equation, Russia trying to lean on 
some other countries, including China. But the question remains, will China step up to help Russia in its war in Ukraine? Some experts say it's not likely. Benoit Hardy-Chartrand is an adjunct professor at Temple University, Japan, in Tokyo, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Benoit. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Your thoughts right now on how China has responded to the conflict in Ukraine? Yes, it's been immensely interesting to watch um, how China would react or reacted to this conflict. We have to keep in mind, just to put things in context, that China and Russia's relation has strengthened and gotten tremendously closer over the last 10 years. Uh, Vladimir Putin, as well as Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping, have a very close personal relationship. They have met a grand total of 38 times so far, which is a whooping number, really. Um, And they both have very similar worldviews. They have similar uh, geostrategic interests. So it makes sense that both of them would want this relationship to get closer and closer. However, China is in a relatively, not relatively, actually fairly uncomfortable situation when it comes to the invasion of Russia and Ukraine, because on the one hand, it does have this very close partnership uh, with uh, with Russia, a relationship that China and Russia have both qualified recently, just before the Olympics as being without and without any limits. That's exactly the wording that they used. But at the same time, China is uncomfortable because one of its most important uh, values, a sacrosanct value for China is non-interference and territorial sovereignty, territorial integrity, which are values and principles that Russia is blatantly violating with this with its invasion of Russia. Uh, so for China, it's a little bit difficult to kind of find itself uh, in between these two, uh, these two uh, values, which are seemingly irreconcilable. Uh, so far, since the beginning of the war, China, I would say, has, uh, I would say, has been in Inclined to uh, be a little closer, be supportive of Russia with some caveats. Uh, you have seen uh, China using the kind of diplomatic language that Russia has espoused. For example, China has never used the word war. It has used military operations, which is, of course, the preferred vocabulary of, of Russia, which doesn't call it an invasion or war. But at the same time, you can see that through different ways that Russia, uh, China at the same time has been quite uh, relatively forceful in calling for diplomacy and, and, and you know, in trying to get this conflict to end as quickly as possible. So it's definitely a difficult situation to be in. And it's going to be an even more difficult situation um, when it comes to deciding whether or not to help Russia. What kind of economic ties do China and Russia have? And does this war impact that economic uh, connection? Right. Well, the ties between China and Russia are, are multifaceted. There's, there's security, there's political, but indeed also there is uh, trade and, and economy. Their trade has uh, has increased tremendously over the last 10 years, well, since the end of the Cold War, as a matter of fact. Um, a lot of it, however, is one-sided. Russia depends on China a lot more than China depends on Russia. A lot more trade. Uh, the, the, the trade balance is very much in the favor of China. Um, so, for example, especially now with these uh, with the 
these sanctions on Russian energy, uh, Russian oil, Russian gas. We know that the United States has decided to ban all imports of oil from Russia. We know that uh, natural gas pipelines to Europe, including to Germany, have been suspended. So now Russia finds itself forced to look more towards China, which puts, uh, which means that Russia doesn't have a lot of leverage now. So this um, imbalance in their trade is probably going to be even further lacking balance, um, especially if Russia finds itself kind of begging for its partner to help itself come out of this uh, difficult situation it finds itself in. Benoit Hardy-Chartrand is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. He's an adjunct professor at Temple University, Japan, in Tokyo. Um, it, it seems unlikely that China will send any military equipment to the war in Ukraine, but could they fund the war financially? Uh, indeed. So you're right uh, that... Uh, Military help to Russia would be would be very difficult for for China to accept because that would make China a party to the conflict. Uh, it would also undermine years of effort by China to present itself as a responsible um, state, global stakeholder, as a power that is uh, peaceful and seeks stability. So that's not something that obviously China wants to to undermine. Uh, when it comes to financial help, um, yes, I. It's likely, I think, that China is going to help. We're not sure uh, yet, but financial help, economic help is something that is uh, more palatable to the Chinese leadership. Uh, it is something also that is slightly easier to, to hide than military help. But the problem, it's not without risk, obviously, because if China decides to help Russia with its war efforts, that means China is going to be liable to financial uh, sanctions from uh, the U.S., its allies and partners. Partners, and we are seeing right now how much toll these sanctions have had on the Russian economy. Um, and although the Chinese economy is, is stronger, more resilient uh, than the Russian economy, there's no doubt that uh, the Communist Party and President Xi Jinping want to avoid uh, any kind of damage to their economy, given that uh, they don't have electoral legitimacy to uh, help boost their support. Uh, so a lot of their legitimacy comes from um, economic uh, growth and economic stability. Wonderful breakdown of the situation and uh, China's involvement and uh, really non-involvement in this point in the war in Ukraine. Benoit, really appreciate the time today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. That is Benoit Hardy-Chartrand, an adjunct professor at Temple University, Japan, in Tokyo. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big day on Friday. Why? Well, 16,000 faculty at Ontario's 24 public colleges, that includes Hamilton's Mohawk College, could strike on Friday unless the College Employer Council, the CEC, agrees to voluntary binding interest arbitration. What is that? What does it all mean? And who will be impacted? Well, let's ask our next guest. Heather Jardine Tuck is the president of OPSU Local 240 and a professor of communication and global studies at Mohawk College. Heather, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Rick. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about Friday's deadline. How did we get to this point? Well, unfortunately, Rick, we got to this point because we have had escalating actions from the College Employer Council since November. And our bargaining team was hopeful that we would not get here. And since November, they've offered to the College Employer Council to either return to the table or agree to binding interest arbitration. And unfortunately, that has not happened. So that leaves us here. I still have hope, honestly, Rick, until 11.59 on Thursday that the College Employer Council, through pressure from the 24 college presidents, 
will realize that the path forward is binding interest arbitration where both parties sit down in front of a neutral third party, which is the arbitrator. And that is how our next contract would be determined. So we do remain hopeful, but at this point, it is unfortunate that we've landed here and our, our concern is for our students. We don't want to disrupt our students here. We're dealing with a group of students that have already had a disrupted path to get here. As a result of the pandemic, they had no graduations from high school. They've had a challenging college experience, not the full college experience that we'd love them to have. And we don't want labor disruption to further impact their year. We truly don't. So we're hoping that pressure from our student groups will reach the ears of the 24 college presidents and get them to direct the CEC to either return to the bargaining table or agree to binding interest arbitration. Aside from the arbitration part of this, what are the key issues in the dispute? The key issues for this round of negotiations, it's time for our students. And Rick, that means time to evaluate our students appropriately. We currently have five minutes per student and the team is asking asking for 6.8 minutes to give appropriate feedback to our students rather than simply a, a pass-fail situation. It's also about protection for our counselors and our librarians. We have no contracting out language in our collective agreement, and that puts our counseling group and our librarians in a very precarious position. We have already lost counselors at a college called La Cité, And in that college, all of the counselors were laid off and their work was contracted out, Rick. So no contracting out language is really, really important for these two groups. We already have 11 full-time librarians in the system. We don't want to see that reduced further. We should have one librarian at a minimum at each college. So it's about no contracting out to protect those groups, as well as our teaching and our non-teaching faculty It's about fairness for all faculty. We'd like stronger language around equity, diversity, and inclusion. And we're looking for continued improvement to the quality of our community college education. I'm somebody who's devoted her entire career to the community college system. I chose to be here. And we have a really good, strong community college system, but it could absolutely be made better And this round is about making it better and putting those protections in place so that the community college system I've had the privilege of working in for 34 years will continue and be even better for the folks that are coming up behind me and for our students as a really viable option for their education, for the jobs of the future. That's what this round is about. It's really, really important. We have a couple more minutes with Heather Jardine Tuck, president of OPSU Local 240 and a professor of communication and global studies at Mohawk College. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as we discuss the um, likelihood or maybe unlikelihood, if it's a positive scenario, of 16,000 faculty at Ontario's 24 public colleges uh, possibly going on strike on Friday. Apart from students who we know are going to be impacted by uh, a work stoppage, who else will be impacted by this strike? Well, 16,000 faculty, Rick, will be impacted, teaching and non-teaching faculty. You know, our group includes uh, full-time folks, partial load, 
contract faculty, our counselors and our librarians that I've mentioned, this is a really large group of people. And to me in 2022, it seems utterly irresponsible and reprehensible that the College Employer Council will not agree to the path forward. Our strikes, Rick, have always, if they, if they weren't negotiated at the table, they've always ended in binding interest arbitration. That's always what's ended them. So the arbitrators picked a little bit out of each side's proposal and we get a contract. So knowing that that will be the final result here, we don't understand. It's unconscionable that they would let this go to a strike, which will impact the students and it will impact 16,000 faculty and it will impact their families and our community. This is not the time for a strike. We did not make this decision lightly but we were pushed into a position where we had no choice, given that the College Employer Council was ratcheting up disciplinary action toward our members, and they were starting to talk about lockout. These are things that we just couldn't risk, and that's how we ended up here. But as I said, Rick, we remain hopeful. 11.59 on Thursday. We have had other situations of impasse that have been resolved at literally the 11th hour, 11 o'clock at night before we were to go the next day. So I'm hopeful that this too can be resolved without us having to go out on strike. Hopefully that will be the conclusion that we see. We got to run here, Heather. Really appreciate your time today and good luck at the bargaining table. Thank you very much, Rick. Thank you for your time and certainly anything else you need, I'm available. Thank you so much. Great to hear. Heather Jardine Tuck, President, Opsi Local 240 and a professor of communications and global studies at Mohawk College. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The return to work debate continues and maybe it's not necessarily a debate for some, but for others it is. They have grown extremely comfortable and maybe have been even more productive working at home. They've perhaps saved on daycare costs and the like. It has been a uh, a potential win-win. But more and more employees are being urged and asked to return to the physical workspace. Can an employee refuse that request. Fiona Martin is our next guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Fiona is an employment lawyer and an associate at Semfiro Tamarkin LLP. Good morning, Fiona. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me this morning. As we know, it's been a trying couple of years for all of us. Can an employee say thanks but no thanks if their employer asks them to return to the office? Yeah, so that's a, it's a good question. I mean, generally, an employer has the right to determine where employees must perform their work. So if you were working pre-pandemic in the office and the understanding is that you were hired to work in the office, um, technically, an employer can require you you to come back into the office now that restrictions are are lifting. Um, Now, of course, if you were hired pre-pandemic with the understanding that 100% of your duties could be completed remotely, then your employer cannot force you to go back into the workplace. Um, That said, there's always some room, despite kind of what the law might say, there might be some room um, to negotiate with your employer. As you mentioned, a lot of businesses have found that their employees have been more productive working remotely. Um, so there could be some room to negotiate with your employer to to move into some sort of hybrid model. But from, I guess, a legal perspective, technically, if the, if you were hired to work in the office pre-pandemic, the understanding is that, yes, they can 
your employer can recall you and require you to come back to the workplace um, on a full-time basis. Would the same rules apply to those who were hired amid or during the pandemic, knowing that, listen, you can't come to the office, one day we hope that you do come, but right now you have to stay from home. Would those employees be in the same boat? Yeah, so it would depend on the the terms of the employment contract that they signed, right? So if they signed on to a contract during the pandemic with the understanding that they might eventually be required to go back into the workplace, then yes, their employer has the right to now recall them into the workplace. Um, If they signed on to a contract, um, if there was an understanding that their job was 100% remote or that they could have a hybrid model, uh, then that's the situation that would that would apply. So it, it just really depends on what the understanding was between the employee and the employer at the time of hiring. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Fiona Martin, employment lawyer and associate at Semfiru Tamarkin LLP. We know that a lot of people have saved on commuting. Could the rising cost of gas be a legitimate reason to request that uh, an employee stay at home? Un- unfortunately, not. Like, I guess it's the question, can an employee kind of use that as an argument to say, no, I don't want to commute to go back into work? I mean, unfortunately not. Um, the rising prices of com- commute time, or sorry, commuting would be kind of a reasonable, quote-unquote reasonable reason to not go back into the workplace. That being said, there are some exceptions, um, not so much with commuting, but with like health considerations, if you have a health, uh, some sort of disability that prevents you from commuting into the workplace on a regular basis, as long as you have medical documentation supporting that your employer has a duty to accommodate you under the human rights code. Um, again, with childcare needs, um, there are some there is a duty to accommodate some child care needs under the Human Rights Code. So there are exceptions um, to the obligation to go back into work to the workplace, but unfortunately the, the rising commuting costs wouldn't be classified as of now as a reasonable reason to go back, to avoid going back into the workplace. We only got about 60 seconds for this one, but the mask mandates in Ontario are lifting. Does that add a different layer to the conversation? There might be some people at a workplace who want to continue wearing masks, others who don't. Is that going to add or cause some friction? I'm, I'm sure it will. Uh, despite the lifting of the mask mandates, technically employers can still require employees to work in the workplace. Um, your employer can ask you to go back to work as long as they are in compliance with public health guidelines and, and work safety measures, although that will may not eventually include masks. Um, they still will be required to like sanitize and regular hand washing. Um, but I, I suspect there will be a bit of conflict between employees that want to wear masks and employees that do not want to wear masks. So um, employers will have to kind of strike a balance and maybe have some employees work in a different space than others. We'll see how that breaks down. Fiona, thanks for breaking down this uh, latest issue for us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Fiona Martin, employment lawyer, associate at Semfiro Tamarkin LLP. You can catch more from Semfiro Tamarkin LLP on the Employment Law Show on Sundays right here on 900 CHML from noon until 1. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It is 
A basketball fan's dream come true right about now, or at least this week. March Madness, the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament, Women's Tournament, going to be starting as well. We're all going to be filling out our brackets. March Madness pools will be occupying your workplace. If you are working at a physical workplace, even if you're working from home, you can go on um, a gazillion websites and fill out a bracket and be involved in a March Madness pool. But when it comes to the perfect bracket, is there is there such a thing? Does it exist? Well, Washington Post reporter Neil Greenberg has created one, a perfect bracket that's not intended to have a great record in picking individual games, which is kind of weird, but we'll get into it. But it is a clever selection of teams that will help you win your March Madness pool. Let's take a deep dive into this. Neil Greenberg, reporter with the Washington Post, joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. It's uh, one of the most exciting times of the year for sports. Absolutely. And with more than nine quintillion possible brackets, how did you create the perfect bracket? So I look to um, create a bracket that's going to be unique. And, and that's really the key to winning these big pools. When you look at um, you know any pool that you go in that I would say that has more than 100 people, um, you really have to start to make, uh, you have to take some bold picks. It, sure, the, you know, Gonzaga might be the best team in, in college basketball, and, um, you know, there's a lot of different places that are giving them anywhere between 20 and 25% chance to win the title, including my own calculations. But that also says that they may have as much as a 75% chance to not win. And um, when you're looking at differentiating your bracket, you know, if Gonzaga falters at any other time, um, earlier than the title game, you know, that's going to eliminate, you know, a quarter of the brackets that are out there. So um, it looks to to make, you know, educated guesses, look at the risk-reward propositions for each of the games, and, um, you know, move forward the team that, you know, has a good chance or a better chance to, to move forward than other people are giving them credit for. When uh, a lot of people are filling out their brackets, some will go, some will do a lot of homework and you know do the research or, or really follow NCAA basketball. Others will pick teams based on mascots or nicknames, whatever the the case is. How did you predict some of the upsets and and some of the other matches in March Madness? So for upsets in particular, I look at teams that should should have an advantage on the offensive rebounds and also on turnovers. <clears throat> Those are extra possessions, and when you look at historically what has transpired in terms of upsets, those are, are two box score stats that, that typically jump out. Also, three-point shooting can be very fickle. And, you know, if you have a team that likes to take a lot of three-point shots and seems to be doing very well at them, one cold night can can absolutely ruin their chances of winning a game. Um, we saw that when um, number one Virginia was upset by number 16 UMBC a couple of years ago. You know, Virginia just went cold from the three-point line. UMBC seemingly couldn't miss, and uh, that was almost the entire difference of, of the score. You know, you want to take a little bit of a, of a deeper look into some of these teams, but extra possessions have always been key um, so if you have a good offensive rebounding team or a good defense that, that forces turnovers and they're an underdog, um, they're probably worth a second look. We only got about a minute here, Neil. Uh, Neil Greenberg, reporter with the Washington Post. Your final four is Kentucky, Kansas, Tennessee, Texas Tech. Who wins it all? 
Um, I I like Kentucky to win it all among those. I think that they offer the best value. Um, they've also been a great team this year, very highly rated, do a lot of good things. Um, I think Kentucky is a great value pick for your national championship. Should be a great tournament. Enjoy it, Neil. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Good luck. That is Neil Greenberg, reporter with the Washington Post. My final four, not that I've done a tremendous amount of research, but I've watched some games here or there, some highlights here or there. I have Gonzaga, the number one team in the tournament, Kentucky, Arizona, and Kansas. I know a few of those are number one seats. It's hard to pick against the number ones. And I have Arizona taking down Kentucky in the NCAA Men's Final Four Championship game. Should be a good one. Good luck in your pool. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.